Hello everyone, welcome to episode 19 of the Board Game Gambit podcast. Today we're talking about push your luck in games. We are coming to you live from day four of the Board Game Gambit Con, which we are celebrating and enjoying by uh, playing games in the uh, best four days of quarantine gaming. Yes, and it's a new boat because it's the first time that we record in person, first and probably the last for a little while, because obviously restrictions are still in place, so we were just the four of us for this weekend with another couple of friends, and it's weird to, to do it in person. There, there, are, there were some episodes lost to my technical inability that we tried, but it's a different, different experience. Definitely. So joining you as always is me, Nathan. And I'm Jackie. And uh, so yeah, so, so today we're going to be talking about push your luck elements in games. Not only just strictly push your luck games, but also games that ha- may have a push your luck element in them. The other thing that we're going to be doing today is doing our in-depth game review of Alma Mater. Jackie, what have you played recently? Beside the gamut of games that you have played during this weekend that we can go into together. The one thing that I was very happy last week, we had a few days of work and we got to play Descent, which is one of my longtime favorites, which we hadn't played in a while. It's a big one versus many game with, obviously, for those who have seen it, it's a fantasy theme, a very generic fantasy theme. There are orcs and monsters and all of that, and heroes that gain and defeat the monsters. And over the years, the last two years or so, I had played it in the cooperative version that is with an app. But we went back to what made me fall in love with that game, which is the very tight way in which it plays. So one or more players play the heroes, and each hero has a special ability, but also a special class that they develop throughout a campaign. And the other player plays the Overlord, which is the enemy and moves the monsters. For those of you familiar with role-playing games and things like that, this is not a game master, meaning is narrating the story and keeping secrets, is a flat-out opponent using all of their resources to try and defeat the hero players. And is one of those games that prides in the variety of the puzzle. So obviously there is a lot of luck involved because every turn you assemble your pool, you try to get the best conditions for your attack, but then you roll dice. And sometimes there is a die that just says you miss. But what makes it very interesting is that every scenario has a lot of different conditions, not only the scenario different. Today you need to escape. Today you need to reach a monster and kill it. Today you need to stop monster from stealing crops and something like that. But also the way the different monster behaves. So big monsters stop you and can throw you and this specific monster can paralyze you and this specific monster is immune to distant attacks and things like that. And I think that while I can see some, some of the flaws, some things that people didn't like it in the second edition, for me, that's still the best dungeon crawl out there. Gloomhaven, notwithstanding, I I really, really like it. And 
it's a really tight, chock full of decision game. I think that the Sand Second Edition is the proof that Ameritrash games can still be a very challenging, very thinky, very involved experiences. Sure, compared to a Euro, things can go array, but it was a great, great few days of, of the Sun. So how many did you play it with? We played it with two, which is, it has become our most common format because the theme part would be still kind of a cooperative. And so we would need players that want to play it like with some dedication because otherwise it would quickly devolve into the one of us between Anne and I who was playing on the hero side unwillingly quarterbacking other players. So we had played it sometimes with, with more players if someone is a gamer and really wants to play it. But when we tried to introduce it to friends for, oh, let's play a little bit of this because maybe they like video games or they like role-playing games, becomes quickly either a disaster because they're playing it like a role-playing games. So, oh, I move and attack. No, 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 you need to move to that square. And if you do that, that monster will devour you. Or vice versa, basically playing it as an accessory. For a while, a few years ago, we were playing it regularly. We had a Taco and the Sand Thursday, which was great, not only because there were tacos involved, but because we were playing together. But recently, we have been playing with two players. When you play with only one player on the hero side, they have to use at least two heroes. We chose to use three because the game is differently balanced. Every monster group is scaled it has the three levels, so it's very well thought out. And the way it works without going into the details, for us, the, the perfect balance is at three. Maybe not in balance of power, but in balance of what you experience, land versus variety versus monster powers, things like that. So I was just briefly looking at it on uh, BGG, and it says that the second edition has simpler rules for determining line of sight. Oh, that's a big thing. Actually, people like to discuss it ad nauseum. So in Don Dungeon Crawls, and this is no exception, there are all these styles, these rooms, these obstacles, and determining what you can attack had been a little bit of a mess in the old version, which we also played and we really liked. Um, and so in the new ones, we went with a super simple rule, which, however, makes the obstacles on the map not particularly relevant you can create obstacles using your pieces but vice versa the rooms are basically irrelevant from that regard not for movement but for line of sight to the point that a lot of people online and we as well play with the imperial assault line of sight rules which imperial assault was born as basically the skin of descent with the Star Wars theme, but they added a couple of different rules, and one of them that we imported is the line of rules, the line of sight rules. Interestingly enough, the Sand Second Edition, it's a very popular game, one of the best sellers for Fantasy Flight before Star Wars came around, in general, the Star Wars license, still very strong. Now I think they stopped producing new content. There is a big giant box that was shown in the Gencom preview and people don't know what it is. Is it the third edition? Is it the legacy version? Is it some kind of weird thing? But you know, when they switched from the first to the second, 
this, they did a very good job, I think, with the rules. They lost some things that people who were attached to that old-fashioned, more Ameritrashy, more busy kind of the first game missed, but I I really like it. And the miniatures are probably not top-notch because Fantasy Flight is not specifically a miniatures company, so it's not Gaten Workshop quality, but it's probably not Simon quality either. A little softer plastic, a little fewer details, but they still satisfy my needs and also I'm not a painter and so sometimes miniatures with a little less detail are less problematic. There are some companies that do fantastic minis that are meant to be painted and if you don't they stand out. We should try it sometime. Yeah it seems like something I would like. I So the reason why I asked about the line of sight specifically is because that's like my least favorite thing to deal with in games. I don't like I don't like it in Mansions of Madness, where you have monsters with line of sight where they like can they see you or where do they go? I don't like it in in that was my big problem with the Zombicide too, was line of sight and why I ultimately got rid of Zombicide from my collection was because it was just I, I don't know, like, I like things that are a lot more cleaner and well-defined, and I feel like... And I even played the Zombicide, uh, the Black Horde. No, Black, Black Plague. Horde, Black Plague. <laughs> I'm combining two. <laughs> Green Horde and Black Plague are two separate things. Okay, so, no, I, it was Black Plague, and that was the one where they had cleaned up the rules for line of sight and things like that. So, I... It just... I don't know. I like my rules very well defined, very unambiguous where I can just say, this is what I'm doing, <laughs> you know, like instead of going, okay, well, let me look at this flow chart of, is this true? Then yes, then no, that kind of thing. I think that whatever line of sight rules you ended up playing with, the Sand Second Edition or Imperial Assault, they're both made to be extremely clear. Uh, the Sand Second Edition is... If from one corner you can see a corner of the other, you see it. Without crossing a, an occupied space, you see it. Something like that. Which means you see almost everything, but it's still very clear. But even the Imperial Assault rules is if from one corner of the miniature you can trace to two corners of another spot, which sounds cumbersome, but once it's on the table, it means, oh, okay, I can see that this you basically trace it to the closest corner and you can see it. It, it. We never even stop checking. And that's something that, for example, I used to play miniature games, like we mentioned in the Eric Lang episode, the um, Game of Thrones, uh, Song of Ice and Fire miniature game. And, and their line of sight is a big thing because you have terrain and, and you don't have squares. So you are tracing and sometimes you have discussion, especially when you play with cool terrains, which I never had, but... To, uh, game stores usually have them for for players to use. And so you have this fantastic, I don't know, destroyed factory or castle. And you go, wait, can this mini through the tree, down the window, by the river, see that other mini? And sometimes I never had like a heated discussion, but I've seen people like in a competitive environment going, oh, no, 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 because you have to look from this 
point of the mini that I hate. At some point, I will show you. I, I don't know if you would, well, maybe you would like it, but it's an involved two player game, so I don't know how often we will have the luxury to get into it and refresh the rules. There is a game called Tannoiser by Fantasy Flight. Okay. You move miniatures, each miniature is a character, so they are very involved, etc. But they the boards are printed with colored paths that interact, like all of the circles. And so, you know, if your space shared, shares a color with another space, you see. If you, they don't, you don't. So the corridor will be a red, and then on the corner, it will be red and green because the other room. And so if you're standing there, you can see both the corridor and the room. And that's... That's nice. That makes it super easy. Maybe we'll have to bust out Descent. I think it's something that you could like, because as you were mentioning recently, it, sometimes it's mentioned as a cop, but it's really not a cop. It's a two or three versus one. And I'm positive that you wouldn't like the app-guided version because that's a traditional cop. Things happen, you move through, you have to decide how to react to the AI. But instead, adding a player that is not only moving the monster, but they have a hand of cards that they can play to stop your action, try to interact with that. It's really interesting. So I played a very adorable card game with Brian. We played a game called Abandon All Artichokes. Have you heard of it? I have heard of it. I have not seen it. It's so cute. It's little vegetables with faces. (laughs) And it's from... Game right, and it's by Emma Larkins, and it was, it's a a game where you start, it's like reverse deck building. You're it's a deck culling game. You're trying to get rid of all of the artichokes from your deck, and meanwhile, are picking up different different vegetables. They each have a little power when you play them, and you are basically just trying to get rid of all your artichokes out of your deck, and then you win when you draw back up at, at the end of your turn, and if your hand has no artichokes in it, you win. So, I am looking at it. First, yeah, <laughs> it's adorable. Second, I hate, hate artichokes with a passion, but since you're getting rid of them, I could see myself playing it, because I share the, the passion of the designer for getting rid of artichokes in my food. So, is it a two-player game, or does it it plays up to four. Okay. I've uh, I've only played it with two, but it's it's a lot of fun. I think that it's it's very interesting because normally you're so focused on trying to make your deck better in games that it was very interesting to try and focus on a way of of specifically getting rid of specific cards. Mm-hmm. So like in normal deck building, you have that where you're you know, trying to streamline your deck anyway. But this was, it just felt a little fresher because it was like something that I hadn't really ever done before where it was, I mean, sure, in in other games, you when you're deck building, you want to get rid of those base cards. But these literally did nothing for you and they were the win condition if you didn't have them. So it was, it felt very different, very fresh. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was... It was something that Scott would even like, because he he likes deck building and stuff like that. So I thought it was something. It was good. It was good. And I like the idea of we still have some 
experimental space in a deck building genre, which yeah. is which is refreshing because it's tough to think that ten years ago deck building in the way we are intending it here was one game, was not even genre, was Dominion. And now we have oh experimentation on deconstructing the mechanics of deck building and that shows how much there is to 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 do and explore there. Yeah, it's it's it awesome. It looks very nice. Yeah. What else have you played? Well, you made me play Monopoly Gamer, but I don't want to be negative, so I will go to something else. Um, I actually really liked more, even more than I was expecting. I was interested in playing, but I liked it a lot. Underwater Cities. Yes. <laughs> so Underwater Cities, which is by let me see Vladimir Suchi, and it's a worker placement. Yeah, yeah, worker placement, yeah. I would say, game where you are building underwater cities and the theme comes decently into play. It has two components, basically. A worker placement board where you combine card playing with a worker placement and then a personal board where you are developing your network of stuff. And the, I think the most interesting part of the game is that when you select... There are three colors of worker placement with three players. Each of those has five very distinct spaces that do different things. And when you go to a space, you also get an option of playing a card. Well, you have to play a card, but you have an option of playing a matching color card from your hand. And if you do, that acts as a boost, or actually a second action. So you take two actions. You take the action of the card that you play and the action of the spot that you play. And saying it like this makes it feel very similar to Gugong. It's not. It's a completely different experience. And it combines a lot of different effects. Uh, so it's definitely not a streamlined or elegant mechanism, I think, of a Euro. It's the opposite. It's, it embraces its complexity. It can be a little cumbersome at times, but I really, really, really like that mechanic of, okay, you have only three cards. So I have to deal with color shortages, but also this action I really want, but the card I have for that color is not great. And the there is some redundancy among the actions, but never on the same color. So for example, there is, this won't make much sense, but without going into rules, but we don't want to delve into the very long rules of the game. <laughs> but there is a spot to build two tunnels on orange. And then there is a spot to build a tunnel and something else on, uh, what is it, red. Purple, red. And then there is another one on green. But each is different. So you have to deal with, oh, I want that spot. And if they take that spot, I can do the same thing elsewhere, but it's a different card. And also, do I want to do the action that is a little better for me, but the card that I have doesn't match? And that's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. To the point that the two things that I didn't love didn't bother me. One is, as we mentioned, you're building this network on the side. And I felt it was a little punkier than it needed to be. It, it had a few rules that were constantly getting in the way, but not particularly constricting. It was just an okay, very procedural. And the one thing that is still a little bit of a problem, but that the game overcomes for me, is, as I said before, 
I don't like particularly limited draws from a very, very deck, which is important. So sometimes, oh, I really want to take that green action and not drawing the cards or drawing cards that they often have requirements and not drawing any of the requirements that you have or, and that the, only few of these things happen to me, but I can see them happening. There are cards of different kind, like with instant bonuses, with activatable bonuses, and with ongoing bonuses, and getting a very good ongoing bonus at the beginning, or vice versa, getting the activatable ones and only those at the beginning could be problematic. But there is so much more in the game that even that specific doesn't bother me. The other reason why I think it doesn't bother you as much is because like in Terraforming Mars, you have one deck for the whole game. Whereas in Underwater Cities, you have one deck, and then after a few turns, you switch to a different deck. And then after a few turns, you switch to a third deck. So it's not like, here's this game, you have all the choices the whole time. It's it's really good in building up what the game is progressing towards, which is a streamlined machine where you're making resources and and doing more advanced things and having more resources to spend on different things. So I think that that might be part of why that you like it a little bit better than Terraforming Mars or think that it's less problematic. Yes, I absolutely agree. It The fact that things are targeted to what you have right now, so you don't draw a card that, oh, sure, I need this card for endgame scoring, but... <laughs> If I use my turn to play it now, I'm killing my machine. That's certainly a part of it. And also, I think that the fact that you are caring for so many different things at the same time is, okay, I didn't get the card to keep going with my building city strategy, but I still need efficient resource production and connection and trying to get the, these little bonuses. So I will pivot to the other one. And since you need to do a little bit of everything, it's very good. Again, I think it's a game that could benefit from cleaning up a few things. Not only that thing about the network, there are few rules that you really don't need for them to be there. Oh, you can build a building only where there is a city, even if it's not connected, but the city doesn't count if it's not connecting. And the city, you can build it close to another city if it's not connected, but then you have to connect the bridge, the tunnel, and the tunnel can connect to another tunnel, but not all of that yeah. gets busy. And also, while it wasn't a problem, but the way the special actions are taken and paid for, and it's a little busy. There are a, certain, a few things that seem to be there just to add a little bit of a rule. I like the way the special actions are taken. I think it's so... It's you have to plan it so specifically because yes, you're taking a card which costs one, two, or three credits, which in the beginning money is super tight in the game, but you're taking this card, but you're not taking it and playing it, you're taking it and putting it in your hand, which is limiting what else can be in your hand. So it's I don't know, it's just so good. It's it's one of my favorite games, honestly. It's probably in the top five, which, I mean, is good because I spent a bit of money upgrading the pieces. So, <laughs> which uh, I think everyone appreciates, though. Oh, yeah. 
uh, that was actually at the same time a great and a worrisome thing, meaning the pieces look great. Uh, we were playing with little 2D but thick plastic submarines as our worker, worker placement pieces, basically. The resources were colorful and shaped like the things that they are. And then I realized you're saying, oh, I got this and I got that. I'm like, okay, but what is the look of the basic game? And I look <laughs> it up online and it is quite frankly outdated. That, that That's something that in a game today, especially a game that is meant for a market that is saturated with well-looking games, I think it's a little subpar. Were the cities also an upgrade piece? No. The cities are actually really nice. But again, that's what I was saying. For example, the cities I could have done with just a round mark because you just place them there. The worker placement and the resources were really tough to look at in the basic one. Yeah. But I have my uh, devious plan. So for those listening, I have... And the designer specifically. Yes, Vladimir, <laughs> listen to me, uh, my pal. So your game has incredible good ratings and rightly so. You did a great job. So now you need to come up with the deluxe version so that Nathan feels compelled to buy your game. Him and I, I feel, make, I'm sure, a lot of other people. And therefore, he finds himself with a pimped up copy that he needs to offload to me. So I can get your great game with his great 3D printed <laughs> Etsy pieces and he gets a fancy version and he can lord over me with his fancy version. And I don't need to spend a lot of money on the game. But and then the everyone game, wins. Everyone wins. And you get your Kickstarter. So go do it. <laughs> no. I had heard about Underwater Cities. I thought I would like it. I like it quite a bit. And the interesting thing is that even the things that were not super great, even in the moment where they were a little frustrating, they still didn't make me not like the game. Yeah. Which is... Well... One thing, I think that your top five has extended to like 17 games over the last three episodes. It's true. Yeah, um, but, but, but it's good. It's, <laughs> it's certainly your favorite underwater construction game, it's I like, think. It's like Mary Poppins' bag, yeah. where you just like keep putting stuff in and putting stuff in, and you don't actually know how many things are in there. At any time, you can pull out 20 different things. Mm -hmm. That's what my top five yeah. is. Would you say that this is your favorite submarine placing game so technically you're not placing subs in the actual thing so you made it your favorite submarine placing game yeah yeah i did no no um <laughs> it's great i know there is an expansion i'm at the same time interested and worried about adding more stuff and going over my threshold for oh very complex and interesting game and turning it into okay this is too busy to it might not. I'm not saying it. It will. I not not even seen the rules. Yeah. It might be perfectly fine, but I'm worried because this sits at the perfect uh, limit of even length. Length was a little over, but it didn't feel long. Mm -hmm. I would not try it with four players. I I wouldn't. I think it's a perfect three. I would try try it with two, but I like the interaction of the three, and I will give it a try with the expansion. If someone plays it and tells me, oh, don't worry, it just makes things work different, but not more. 
I, for example, there were certain things we were playing. The expansion comes with recess boards, which are nice. Yes. And there were some symbols. And if on top of all of the really a little punky rules for network and placement of things, I have to also worry about underwater, what is it, archaeological ruins. Yeah. I might go, nope, I'm out. So I, I'm hesitant. Curious, curious. Yeah. But it was great. Thank you for teaching it. No problem. I, I thought that you would like it, for sure. So I think we should move on to our in-depth game review, mm-hmm. which we said was Alma Mater, which is from Egert Spiel and by... Virginio Gigli from Minia Brasini, Antonio Tinto, and Stefano Luperto, which are, as we mentioned before, either all or members of the Akitoka Collective, which has quickly become, I think, yours as well, among our favorite designers. It is interesting for me because they also often collaborate with either Tashini and Luciani. And so it's not just the collective itself, but also the people that work together, which is fascinating example of collaborative design. This, as you said, is published by Eggerspiel and basically just came out to the point that you had to cancel your, your future to get into your past. How was it? You ordered it from the publisher? I ordered it from Eggerspiel. And I guess the distributor in the U.S. was Plan B Games. And I guess the with everything going on and shipment delays, um, it wasn't going to be around until October. So, unfortunately, that wasn't... If, if it's available at other places... Yeah, it's already available. Yeah, I simply ordered it. I have waited for this game for a long time. And... A lot of people have. Yeah, and it's it's looks graphically a little bit like Coimbra, but more than a little bit, I would say. There are some exact people from Coimbra in this game. And I think that has colored the expectations of people uh, in terms of expecting a game that is very similar, while we can start with that, it's certainly not. Right. For example... People focus on the cards and seem to leave out the fact that Coimbra is very dice-based, and this will not. But um, do you want to give an overview of how the game works, and then we can move into discussing it? So in Alma Mater, we are different scholars trying to run a university, I guess, and we have different little books that represent our area of expertise, and we're trying to sell them to other players to get money from them. We're trying to get different combinations of books in order to get students. We are also trying to go up on this research track. So if we do more research, we're more prestigious. So therefore we have like stronger valued books. So they are better for getting more students. You also are trying to get professors, and the first person to go to a professor sets the cost for everyone else, because, which, that I really liked. I thought that that was really smart. The way that you, sure, the the general requirement for a specific professor was three books, two books, two books, one book. Of different colors. Of different colors. So you had to have... Three of one kind, two of one kind, two of one kind, and one of one kind. So, But when you went there, if no one else had gone there, you were setting the cost for everybody, meaning... So you had to pay whatever the coin was, unless you had a special power, which Jackie had. 
you could go and you could set the price for everybody. So people, if they wanted to go to that professor, they had to have that specific set of books. So if Jackie went with three blue, two black, two green, and one red, then everyone else had to go there with that exact combination of books, which got frustrating <laughs> because it felt like the game really focused on if you're ahead, let's push you further. And if you fell behind, it became super hard because you're, you're, you probably weren't going up very quickly on the research track, which meant that your books weren't worth very much, which meant that the books that were the cheapest to you weren't good for getting students, which meant that <laughs> it just, it sort of cascaded into this, problem 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 and and it was really hard to like get out of it and before i give more yeah. opinion so the the whole point of the game is to play it over six rounds and then you score and you're scoring for the different professors you're scoring for students that are that you've acquired onto your board you're scoring for based on how many achievement markers you've done on the research track you're scoring for how prestigious your books are at the end, you're scoring for leftover books. Dictionaries, which were wild, but not really, was, that was a little clunky too, you know, where the yellows are wild, but they're not wild, but they are, but they're not, but they, if, if, if the symbol shows this, then they're wild. If they're, if it doesn't show, it was like, ugh. so that was a little busy for me, but so there's lots of, lots of different ways to generate points. And then there was this odd way of getting income, which I wanted to talk about too, where you're, you're putting books into a bookshelf and that's where people can buy from you. But it's also the way that you generate income every turn. And you're also taking a little like bookshelf piece and pushing it in onto your player board. Physically sliding it. And yeah. physically sliding it and knocking one shelf off. And then... It changes the price of, of your books. It changes if you had a full set of books, it knocks a book off. So it just became an, yet another thing that didn't really feel necessary. Yeah. So, yeah, to start with the things, I think there are a couple of things that are, first, very simple and, I guess, uncontroversial for people who have every even a vague interest in game like this. There are worker placement spaces which work very well with a nice nice little twist is a la Cold Baron. So if I go here with one, you can come here, but it will cost you two. Although it's much tighter than in Cold Baron because you're not operating with like 13 workers a turn, you're operating with four. So if you're using two rather than, than one twice, you're doing half my actions. But that's interesting because that's in turn order, it works. And the other thing that was quite straightforward, very common to their games and things like that is... There are a set of special abilities that you unlock if you meet certain conditions, like leaders in Lorenzo or goals in Grand Ostia Hotel. So if you have, in our game was, if you have 15 coins and four dictionaries, these yellow books, you get this special ability and there are different ones every game and that comfortable, very familiar, that was fine. The so, other thing that I did yeah. leave out was that there are there were special 
workers, temporary workers that you could get that were not considered to be your color, but you could use them during that turn for actions because you certain spaces you could go to more than once with your people and certain spaces you could not go to more than once. So on the not more than one spaces, you could go there with one of those workers and then repeat it with with a worker of your actual color. Going on all of the things that you have covered. So let's talk about this income track. So as you said, it's both the income track, which quickly becomes kind of important because if you're only relying on that for income, you're in big trouble. So everyone was either going on the action for money or getting special abilities that would give you other money. And the fact that that sliding and that return, the reason it slides is that it's supposed to make your books cheaper over time. Because if they sit on the shelf and they go on clearance. Yeah. <laughs> and that makes even almost thematic sense. But the problem is, A, that the difference is not that stark. There are spots of cost that are cost two, two, three, three, four, four. So often is, oh, now it's slid. So instead of paying you six for two books, I'm paying five for one, which is not, is not a insignificant difference, don't get me wrong, but for the amount of, forgive the pun, bookkeeping that that involves, it, it doesn't, didn't need to be there for me. It, it, if they had simply done, put these books here and then you can buy them from other people, that would have been, I don't think the game would have been diminished, in my opinion. No, I feel like it could have literally just been, this is where your books go, and then if you have books, take a book out. Yeah. they Even if they had stabilized it at three three coins each. And also there is a weird thing. If you be, buy books, one of them, you can get the points for that shelf, but not all of the ones you buy, only one. And then you flip the shelf and people cannot get points from that shelf anymore. And is first, over the overall experience of the game, you get, what, five points like that? Yeah. Out of... 70, 80 something. And it's another complicated with the physical interaction of flipping the thing that then you have to slide and then you have to keep it flipped. If it slides out, flip. It wasn't painful. You mentioned some people getting frustrated with the game. That was not frustrating. But it was a lot of useless, again, added complexity that I think adds nothing to the game. No, and I think it wasn't intuitive, really. Because yeah. every every time a different person would ask, okay, we have to slide our books. Which way do we slide them from? Yeah. Where do we, you know, what do we do with this now? What? Yeah. So it wasn't, even towards the end of the game, it was not intuitive. It didn't like, oh, now we get it. And we even made it simpler on ourselves because we decided to, set it up the same for everyone because the money cost is fixed but the value of these points points is different but you would have to try and calculate in the first round i will buy five so maybe people will buy the first two so i should put the it it was a mess so that is one thing that is typical of this game as you were saying the professors the professors i also liked i liked how they were yeah you got yeah. them all <laughs> I got three of them. You got two, I think. Yeah, I did. I felt that the variety was not particularly interesting. 
No. I know that they can change, but I felt that often we're going, uh, okay, I need to get a professor rather than, oh, I really want this ability. Let me work towards this professor. And also, the two things don't work necessarily very well together because what you were saying that is very interesting in terms of, I will set the price for this, doesn't jive well with, sure, that's a nice ability, but that other ability is also fine. Because I often found that unless I had the exact books that I needed, which it happened a couple of times, I would rather go for a different professor and establish prices to create problems to others than go for the same. Granted, I had a thing, a student that let me avoid paying for the money for professors. Yeah. But first of all, students are available to everyone. It's not like you draft a special power. So that could be the case in every game. I would have liked the professors to be not necessarily more impactful, but a little more interesting. And also once you get them, you need to spend books to to activate them. You, you activate them once for free and then you have to pay books every round. And that compounds what you were saying before. That also makes you stronger if you have something. Because if you have something, you have the money and the books to buy a professor. So you set the price for the others and you're really a little ahead. Then you get the professor. Okay, so you also got something. And then since you set the price, you set the price to activate that professor. And so people have to get even more of those books. And that was a little bit of a problem. And it's not necessarily overall in the game. I do think that it's a game where you can come back, where you can recuperate, you can try to make things happen. But especially in a turn, there can be an entire round where because you're, you messed up something at the end of the previous round, now your books are low, you didn't start with enough coins, and now all of your round is gone. And you will do two actions. Place two people here to get money, buy some books, not enough to do anything. You have to buy your own books basically every round because they cost one rather than two, three, or four. And so you need them to spend them. And that can be very frustrating for people. And I think that the way the professor work increments that. Uh, one thing that I really liked is the students. Okay. So students are, there are 16 different students. They provide you with various actions, which are actually interesting. Uh, some give you income, some give you something every time you do a certain action, some give you discounts on certain actions, some give you end game bonus points, and some give you different modifications, like ignore a requirement, ignore a book, pay less of something, various things. And they are distinct, useful, interesting. They are not super competitive, meaning they are, I think, three for four players. But being that there are so many, no one ever said, oh, you guys got all of the ones that I wanted. Yeah. And also, I think that's where the, the crux of the game comes in. And that's what will make things interesting or not for people, depending on how they feel, on how they are paid. So while you explain our professors, you set the price in books. And the first person to get them Everyone will follow later on through the game if they want that specific professor. Students have, there are four different levels of different costs for each worker placement, but they basically the most expensive are the end game scoring. The ones that make actions drastically cheaper are the second most expensive and so forth and so on, down to the ones that give you a little bonus every time you do something. However, 
the cost is not fixed, but not like the professor something that you fix and then you know. It is a combination of books that is based on the prestige of your books, which changes from round to round. So they will say something like, two books from the most prestigious author, one book from the second or third most prestigious author, and one dictionary, something like that. Which means that unless you can make it happen in the span of the four actions, sometimes five if you have extra works and things like that, that compose a round, you might be working to something and then the next round begins and now your currency is not valuable anymore, which is, that that's what I think will make or break the game for someone. If you like that idea of, oh, this is basically a market where things change every round, you like it. If instead you want to be able to work towards something and maybe delay getting it because something else requires your attention, then you probably won't like Alma Mater. Because I saw a lot of, oh, okay, I need to get Jackie's books that are expensive because I need to buy this and then I need some of Nathan's book. And then instead Nathan becomes the most prestigious author, someone else passes Jackie and now I needed more of the ones of Nathan, I didn't get enough. And Jackie's books that I have so many, I don't need them anymore. And this other person that just popped up, I don't even have their books. And I like that aspect, but I can see how that can be extremely unrewarding. Yeah, I don't even know where to go with it. To, to <laughs> I don't know what to say about it. So I think that the powers on the students were way more interesting than the powers on the professors. Absolutely. Which is wrong, in my opinion. It should have been the other way around. It should have been something minor on the students. Oh, but then, but then we forgot when you have the professor, the book that you spent the most with, that you take and keep one of those and you put it on your professor and then that book is what they need to give a lecture. And it just was, it was stuff on top of stuff on top of stuff because if you if you ended up putting a book that was cheap on top, but then later on they gain more prestige and their books, everybody wants them, you are going to have a hard time getting the books to give the lectures so you're not even able to use the powers of these professors that you spent all these this time and resources getting. I really wanted to like it. I really did. I I, I think the components are really nice. I think the little books oh, they're are amazing. Amazing. Are adorable. I think the the meeples are generic and and but you know they do what they do. They're nice. The colors of the of everything is nice. The art is a little recycled from Coimbra. It because it literally is some of the exact same people with maybe a different background. Yeah, and I even Coimbra, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone for the art right no. and this is beside going into i mean we won't delve into all of that curve but it is worth mentioning that 
this game got a lot of flack in the restricted niche of board game enthusiasts, obviously not in the, in the New York Times worth it, for very little diversity and representation. But beside that, I find the art, sure, it's a lot of boring-looking people because they wanted to do... These are professors, so they're all standing three-quarters or frontal uh, in a, a off-figure, uh, looking important. It's It looks like the caricature of what people that don't like euros say that euros look. Not on the quality of art. The quality of the art is fine and colorful, yeah. well-drawn and all of that. The quality of the components is great. But it has this very muted, oh, they are all people with books because they are professors. I get it. Give me someone who's looking at the moon through a telescope, another one that is experimenting on something, another one, I don't know, giving a lecture to a, a room, something that is not all of these people standing and looking straight at you. I felt the game could evolve in grinding. If the game is not clicking for you, it can become grinding. I get a little bit of money and I spend a little bit of books. And now I have done these two things and it's a new turn. And these other people are getting my money because I'm buying their books and buying stuff. And for me, the game worked on that regard, right? I, I, I was lucky that I got to run on, on the reputation track early on. And so my books were in demand. So I was getting more money, buying my books. It worked, but I, I could feel the... I need to do this again, and I do need to do this again. And that's something compared to Underwater Cities, for example, that we mentioned before. There is very little sense of progression, meaning you are getting some abilities from the students, but things are becoming more expensive to move up on the reputation track, so you're spending more, and you still do every turn, you do the same things. You buy as much as you can of your books to spend as generic books. You go to usually the person who's ahead on the reputation track, or maybe sometimes you need the second because you already have the first round, the previous round. But So one action is to buy your own books. One action is to buy their books. One turn, one round yes, one round out, you need to buy some dictionaries. And get money. And get money. And so this is what you do almost every turn. And then this turn I buy a professor, this round I buy a professor, and this round I buy a student. And sure, later on, if it balloons, you can get a couple of students, but in six rounds, I got a very good game that I think I got very lucky. I don't think it was particularly constrained, even being the first game. And I ended up with, I think, seven students and three professors. And you can get to 10 students or something like that, nine, and potentially as many professors as you want. But even that, nine students and say four professors would be a great game, is 13 things where you achieve something out of at least 24, but you want to generate more workers and things. So probably 30 actions in the game for a good game and some additional things from your card. So you're doing 30, 35 decision and expansion and all of that to get 12, 13 results. And some of them are very minor. Some students are just, oh, I need another student to score, especially because you get a lot of that in the last round when all of your machine is working and so it's a lot of I think it's unrewarding and I wonder if with two players maybe with a little less competition that rewarding can come easier it's a little easier to plan we uh, you mentioned I haven't even looked into the rules for two players that there is kind of a bot yep doing the third player so I don't know if that would work but one last thing 
for me in terms of going through the different mechanism that I wanted to address is this reputation track. So this reputation track is gives you a little bit of points at the end of the game for whoever is ahead, but that's not a particularly important thing. Important thing is how, as we said, it influences cost and value of things in the game. And it looks very interesting. So it's composed of five cards, and each card, there are a few that you can choose randomly from. So it will be radically different every game. And when I read the description in the rules, it says it tells you the cost or the requirements to move up. And how you move up is not particularly important right now. But and said, oh, interesting. So, and instead it evolved in, you need a lot of money. So sure, there are a bunch of things. So there are two kind of requirements. One is pay money or sometimes books, depending on how much of something you have, which I think is a way to try and stop that snowballing effect. Oh, you have a lot of professors, pay more. That's not was pay one coin for a professor. And if I have three professors and you have none, the advantage that you get from not paying the three coins is nothing compared to having three. And vice versa, some other times was, oh, pay five coins minus two for each of these you have. And you would never, ever do something just to save the two coins, like taking the two or three actions that it takes to acquire something just to save it. So it was a lot of, okay, how much do I need to pay? Oh, now it's three. Oh, now it's one. Okay. And so it was a constant, again, getting money. So... For me, in the end, Alma Mater is a game with, as you said, very charming components, a very interesting dynamic market, which I really like, uh, interaction with other players in terms of buying their books and choosing which players to buy and trying to deny players certain books. That is excellent. But I think where it fails to develop is on three levels. First, the snowballing effect. And most importantly, feeling very constrictive for people who are not doing great and feeling frustrating in the turn and in the overall game. Second, more than one uselessly quonky mechanism. Uh, you mentioned the dictionaries, which are this other color that is not any one player's, but you still need to get it because yes. Uh, and the sliding and all of these busy requirements on the reputation track that basically devolve into playing the money. But most importantly, it lacks a sense of achievement. You do more. It is true that in the fifth turn round, you do much more than you do in the second. But it's not a cohesive working machine like it is in Lorenzo, like it is, for example, in Daniele Tashini's games. It felt a lot of doing the same things, even in the sixth round when things were humming and I had a lot of stuff, I was just doing more of the same things. Yes, I had six workers and a temporary worker rather than the four at the beginning, so I could get six or seven actions rather than four. And I had 20 coins rather than 15, but I was still doing the same things, buying the books that I need, either from other players or from the spot that lets me do it, paying more money to move up the reputation track and using these abilities that are often get a book of any color or pay three less for something. It lacked that excitement that other games of this kind show me. In the end for me, it wasn't a bad game. In a vacuum is a game that has a decent level but trying to make it work 
compared to other games where teaching it is simpler, maneuvering it is, is simpler, accommodates a little more for players who might not be on top of that specific game. I don't see when I would like to play Alma Mater rather than so many other Euros that are there. Yeah, I think that's what it comes down to with me also is that it wasn't a game that, it honestly wasn't a game that I disliked as much as some of the other people that were playing, but I did feel it had too many things that I just didn't really want to wrap my head around. Um, So it, it felt like it just had maybe two or three things too many for me in the end. It was, it had too many things that felt like they were added just for making it more complex. And then the, the part that I love of most of these games, I'll, I'll throw it out and say any Euro is the arc of it. The, the arc of the, the story where you're, Starting off in the beginning, you're like, how will I ever do this? How will I ever do all these things? We're going to score like, when we were playing Underwater Cities, you guys were like, we're going to score like 12 points. No, <laughs> there's so much that, that you can do that gets you so far in the game. And it and it builds and develops and it makes you feel accomplished. You feel like, yes, I, you know, I made smart decisions. I did things. Whereas this felt like that was that that was the reason why for me it was a huge miss was that that I ne- I never felt even when I got professors I have professors I wasn't like wow I planned out so well that I have gotten this professor so it, for me you said it perfectly this mark the market for euros is super saturated and I have plenty other ones that I would play rather than alma mater and i hope that you know for the right gaming group that people enjoy it because it it has some a lot of fun things but for us you know i don't see it getting to the table anytime in the near future alma mater it's like going to a medieval university in the middle of winter only slightly more boring. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> so on that note, I guess we're going to go on to Push Your Luck Games. Yeah, let's change pace completely. Uh, so full disclosure, we did this conversation before, not once, but twice. Um, Push Your Luck was our the, um, the topic of our trial test run for this podcast and then we were happy with it but we weren't happy with the technicality so we recorded the episode again and something went wrong with my computer i lost the editing and so that's lost to to history so we didn't come back to it uh for because of the trauma uh for a little <laughs> bit but now we're we're back with it so um we define it i don't remember did we decided to define it as Push your luck games, push your luck in games, or somewhere in between? A little of both. Just the element of push your luck. So push your luck is any time where 
you have the option of stopping. Stopping some sort of action where if you continue, you can get a negative consequence. But you could also get a positive consequence. So you're sitting there weighing out your options and and the action that you take, whether it be flipping a card or drawing another thing from a bag or anything like that, it's similar to like a blackjack kind of feel where sure you could get closer to 21, but you could also bust and completely lose. So that's what the, the push your luck element is. And there are definitely games that completely are, are just that, that that's the whole mechanism. They're usually a lot lighter. They are very accessible because it's, usually one thing that people are focused on and they're they the the another good thing about them is that they usually accommodate a large number of people so that's really what we're we're looking at so but there are games that have a push your luck element in them so the whole game isn't centered around it but there are there is an instance where you have a push your luck element where you can say, okay, well, I'm going to keep going on this or I'm going to stop or, and that, but that's not what the whole game is. So there's a lot of different things uh, that a lot of different games that use this, but may not even be just a push your luck game. Yes. And I think that I tend to prefer Push Your Luck to be its own thing. I actually really like some of the Push Your Luck games. In theory, I'm very wary of games that are more complex that have a Push Your Luck mechanism because, of course, Push Your Luck is based on very high random results. That's what makes them fun. So when you build it into a game that is not about that, that's risky in terms of design for me. Although I must say that when I was going through it, I thought of games like Abyss and Ninjato. Yep. Um, and you mentioned a few, when, when we were talking about Abyss, that it has a push your luck component. At first I was where, And obviously it's very crucial to the game, but it's well integrated because it doesn't destroy what you already acquired, which is true of the small push your luck games. And that in a game like Abyss would be disastrous, right? You yeah. you build your machine, you buy your lords, and then something happens and you lose them. That would be horrible. While the pusher lucky in Abyss is a way to get resources. So is you know that you will get some resources. You can try and get better resources, or you can get be content with what you have. Like I have a three. Should I look for a five, knowing that I risk a one, but I will get something. But the thing about Abyss 2, though, is there is a lot of strategy that goes into the push your luck element because you have last choice of getting that card. So for those who haven't played Abyss, you are going looking for different colored cards. The higher number cards are, are better. And you are flipping them and you're either saying... or Well, no, you're flipping them and they, they're going around the table deciding whether or not other players want to buy them. And it costs one pearl, then two pearls, and so on. The strategy part of that is, so for example, you know 
that you know how many pearls people have. So you know if one person buys, then they, the other person can't afford to buy. So then you'll have better options. But so it's it's a lot of a lot of different strategy put into the push your luck element, which is why I think I like it in Abyss specifically. Uh, I think that it is really smart the way that they mitigate the the risk by um, even if you go all the way to the end and and nothing's there, you get a pearl which is can be used as a different kind of resource for other things and the card. So you're not ever going away with nothing because if you push and push and push and you went away with nothing, A, no one would ever do it. And B, it would be super detrimental for anyone who did that. So it really gives you meaningful choices, which I think is important if you're, if, if it's not strictly a push your luck game, if it's strictly a push your luck game, have fun, let it be random. <laughs> like, you know, Oh, I, I am so glad I got, you know, all this gold or whatever. But if it's, just a part of it, you need to, well, at least for me, you need to downplay it so that it's a part of it, but it doesn't completely destroy, like you said, it doesn't destroy what you're doing. And in case you're looking for this, this is, again, Abyss. It's by Bruno Catala and Charles Chevalier. The version that we both have is with the art by Javier Collette. The new edition that just came out, I think, has the same designers and artists. Uh, no, it changed artists to Pascal Quido. I haven't seen so, what is there in there, but so Conspiracy is actually a different game. Oh, it's a different game. Yeah, it's okay. A, it's a game in the Abyss universe. It's a role-playing game. Oh, it's a card game. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But they did reprint it, and it's the same. Same artist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, another game that I think is worth mentioning in that it features uh, Push Your Luck prominently, but you can work around a lot and actually is a lot of preparation to be ready to deal with its Push Your Luckiness, is Ninjato, which is by Dan Schnack and Adam West. It's a game from 2011, so it might not be around a lot. Adam West? Is it the Adam West? I doubt that's <laughs> the Adam West. Uh, no, it's not that Adam West. And, uh, I mean, Mr. Adam West, designer of Ninjato, don't get us wrong. You you are, in this case, that Adam West, but not the Adam West. Um, <laughs> and um, it, it's a game, obviously, you can imagine from the name, is about being ninja is very, very Euro-style theme. Oh, you are ninjas that are going to uh, sneak into things and kill people and steal things, and they might face guards or samurais. That's the level of thematic coherence. But basically, the resolution is you're trying to steal treasures and dominate certain locations on the board that have a random stack of cards that you have to face. But again, you can build abilities and cards to be able to do with that. So these are games that integrate uh, Push Your Luck that I think do, uh, do it fine. There is Tiny Gappy Quest. There are also games where the overall feeling is of Push Your Luck, but I didn't consider it um, for this. Like Clank, you're technically pushing your luck on the entire game or the adventures where you risk dying. So do you want more, but you risk dying? 
but there is not a specific mechanic. It's just the end of the game. So you need to get out before you die, or you need to stop before you have too many wins. Okay, so what makes, however, for me, push your luck games something that I really want to get into is what you were saying before, is that feeling of exhilaration when you're putting, uh, playing a game that is just about push your luck and you are faced with the same choice that becomes increasingly more dangerous, which is, do you want more? Yes. And is the it, answer is yes. Yeah, the answer is always <laughs> yes. Is like the more you tighten your grip, the more things escape through your fingers, and you feel this balance between being greedy that you need to be. If you like play always safe, you will lose. And is it's always, but they can do just one more, right? Every time you fail, you don't feel well. Of course, I was too greedy. I I I couldn't keep going forever. I didn't to stop. Is but I was stopping right after this. Yeah. And, and that's a perfect feeling. Or vice versa, since often the choices are shared. There are some games where you have your own choices and when you're done, other people start making choices. But often it is you're doing the same choice at the same time and is I step up and then I see, did I do the right choice and they are going to meet a horrible, horrible fate? Or... Oh no, what have I done? I got out just one thing. I am the pit best of the Beatles. I got out <laughs> right before success, right? And and I think that's that's unbeatable. In terms of excitement, I can think of very little other mechanics that give you that condensed excitement. Because auctions, once you're outbid, you quickly become not interested and you just watch the people with the money do it. Worker placement is great, is probably my favorite mechanic, but doesn't have excitement. And even games with fights, they are like blood rage and things like that. Sure, you have excitement in one specific moment, but then you have a lot of maneuvering, which is what makes them good. While push your luck is not particularly, usually not particularly deep, not particularly clever, but big, big stakes. And then bigger stakes and then ultimate stakes and then you start again with big stakes great and it, it, it is which is why probably i don't like push your luck games and i don't think there are many that go on forever right you don't want them long you don't want the turns to be long you don't want the choices to be long and you don't want the game to be long yeah the only other mechanism that i feel like might give you that excitement is real-time games sure sure but you don't give you the same tension, probably more. <laughs> but it's I, different, yeah. It's cardio for me, as you know. But you don't have that, okay, I'm out, and now I'm just waiting for you to fail. Uh, so there is a little mean, mean, mean streak in, in push your luck games. So are there any that you don't particularly like? So we should start with those. I tried to find some... And I couldn't think of one that I disliked. Uh, I think that it would be, and I'm sure I've played some, but I can't remember. I'm sure that there are, I remember happening, even if I can't figure out which game, games being ruined by push luck, as we said before, games where you have a lot of structure and then something happens and you lose it. There are some that are a little more boring than others. There are some that I have played out and I don't want to play anymore. And then 
one thing that is not a game that is like, but is by far the worst game that I like. I think it's a game that is clunky and problematic, and I understand why people dislike it, but I really, really like it, is Beowulf. I've never played it. Oh, you haven't. Is by uh, Raiden Itzia. It's an auction game with push your luck. So there are a bunch of little things, but it's basically a sequence of something like 15 uh, auctions throughout the game, in which every time you have... There are two kinds of auctions. One in which you secretly choose the bid together and you reveal it, and one in which you keep outbidding and you, you keep going around the table until someone steps out. However, instead of stepping out, you can decide to risk it, which means each auction is paid with different currencies, so you're accumulating different currency to navigate this auction. It's one of those very thematic games where it's called Beowulf, and therefore you are using cunning and bravery, etc., which means you're bidding with cards with the face of a fox or cards with a sword or cards with a ship. Sure. It has nothing of the theme. But published by, I think in the US, is Fantasy Flight Games, and in Europe is Cosmos, and it's from 2005. But some point, let's say you, I bid three and you bid four, and I don't have four to match, I can flip two cards from the deck. And if either one of those matches the required currencies, I add them to my bid. But if I don't, I'm out completely. I cannot even integrate from my hand, and I get a scratch. <laughs> okay. And it's... I don't know what it is, but I really like it. And I must say, most people who play it have fun. But I kind of cannot blame those who don't, because it's... This is dumb. We went like, I spent six, you spent seven, and then I flip a card and I get three more, and now your seven is wasted. It's not completely wasted, because in each auction there are like four or five things, that you, as many as the players. And so whoever wins the auction chooses first, and so it's decreasingly bad. And there are ways to get wounds, there are ways to acquire gold. Uh, we will have to try it. I think you will be in the, sure, it's clunky, but I like it. We'll see. I feel like Scott could have a harder time with it because it's one of those where, oh, great, now everything I own is ruined. Everything I love is cancelled. Oh, well, yeah, no, he... Yeah. He... No. <laughs> Do you have one that you don't like or that you are... I was looking. There, cool. there isn't really one that that stands out to me that... I didn't really like. I'm. I, I can't even really think of it. I guess there are a lot of cops that have push your luck, but if you don't like it, I feel it's more because there are cops than no. And I mean, that's a very. I would say that a lot of cops are basically that because you're trying to manage. Oh, I'm managing this risk, and of course the game could focus on this other risk, right? Is uh, oh, I'm keeping this track under control, and now the deck decided instead to attack me, or things like that. But so I feel that that plays out differently. Um, oh, you know, there is one. Uh, Megaland. Oh, you didn't like it? No. It's Ryan Lockett, right? It is Ryan Lockett. Uh, the the playtime says like 20 minutes, but it went long. And it f felt like it was trying to do new things, but it wasn't Great. I remember the Gen Con that it came out and we were like, 
we have to try this. We have to play it. You know, it's the new Ryan Lockett game. And we played it and it was just really underwhelming. And it, I don't remember anything that was like new or exciting about it. And so it just fell by the wayside for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I wouldn't say that I didn't like it. I would say that it didn't do anything where I was like, wow, this is, you know, cool. This is different. It was just meh. Yeah, I remember it being, even for Ryan Lockett standards, quite hyped. Probably because it was where he was getting his stride where, oh, it's Ryan Lockett, as you said. It's the new Ryan Lockett game. And I do agree that it was underwhelming, to say the least. Ryan Lockett is interesting. It's probably a designer that I would like to love more than I do. Uh, I have a couple of games of his that I really like. But by now, I realize that he has such a big portfolio that the fact that I only really like two or three of them means I don't like him as much as I thought I would. And his games are so charming because he's a great artist that I probably lean into, oh, Lion Lockett a little bit more. Okay, so let's get to things that I actually like. Uh, So my number three is Welcome to the Dungeon. Only a two, though. Only a two. Uh, (laughs) It's a push-your-luck because you don't know... So, Welcome to the Dungeon, we have talked about it before. You are the entourage of an adventurer. The adventurer has a set of equipments, and you are basically deciding that you can do better with that adventurer that you know Porter can. It's the same adventurer, which is this just set of tokens. And you look at the card, which is a monster, and you can either say, sure, you can fight this monster and add it to the dungeon pile, or say... Well, sure, he can beat this dungeon without his sword or without his armor. And so you take the monster out of the pile, but you also take an equipment away from the uh, from the hero. And you keep going back and forth until someone goes, oh, I think with this equipment, he cannot beat this dungeon. You go. And then the other the other player in a two-player game or the last player in, in a multiplayer game uh, has to simply flip the cards and resolve what it is. I feel it's push your luck because while there is nothing completely random, you don't know the cards that are in because the other players are there. And often is, I really need you not to have found a three. Or, okay, the only thing that saves me is if that card that scared you away is actually a seven, things like that. And so I feel it has the feeling of a push your luck. Yeah. Yeah, no, I like that game. I've only played it the one time with you. And I think we played it a few times, but yeah. it was it was good. It was good. It was definitely one that I would tell people to try if they were interested in that uh, theme at all. I think it's it's cute, and it's from Yellow, so it's super nice. Yeah, obviously. So my number three is Avocado Wet, which is fun. It's, it's, you have little rune stones that have numbers on them, and there's one, one, two, twos, three, threes, and so on up to eight. And you are angling the runes so that you can't see what's in front of you, but everyone else can see uh, everyone else's. So. You have an idea of what you might have. Right. 
So, um, but there are some that aren't in play. There are some in a pile on the board where you um, get them if you get certain things. There's some that, you know, aren't there because people, you know, you're not using all of the runes every single time. And it's a push luck element because you are saying, okay, well, I could, you know, eliminate this player because you're, you're casting spells and you're, or you're summoning a dragon or you're doing all these things to eliminate life points from other people and knock them out so that way you are the victor. And I really like that game. I think it's a lot of fun. I think that there's a lot of... I've played this with people who don't... who aren't big gamers, and they really like it. And I think that it's just super cute. The The little runestones are, are fun. They're little tactile experience just you know holding the different little runes and it's i don't know i i like it i like the art i think the the fantasy art is it's cartoonish but it's 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 very nice it suits the game i think yes and i like it that is another one of those where strictly speaking there is randomness because you draw something from the pile but what you draw is not the lucky part right it's not like Drawing certain things is better than something else. So technically, what you're doing is a no-random choice. You are calculating probability, etc. But the feeling, again, much like in Dungeon, uh, what is it? Welcome to the, the Dungeon. Welcome to the Dungeon. Is the same. Doesn't matter if the mechanism is not random. Your decision is ultimately uh, trying to push your luck. Is do I have a four? Uh, maybe I have a four. I will go with the seven because it's safer. Or do I try the four because it's stronger? Because generally, the lower the number, the stronger the, the effect. And I really, really like it. It's Abracadawat. I have an old English-Korean edition that is Abracawat, which I like better as that. Um, so my number two... Oh, but that was from uh, Gary, oh, sorry. Gary Kim is the designer from uh, Z-Man Games. And it was artist uh, Mary uh, Card- Carduat and I, Patricia Ignazak. That's why I don't do names. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my number two, I almost didn't uh, put it on the on my list because we might have played it out a little bit. It's Incan Gold or Diamond, uh, it's the same game in two different versions, is by Bruno Faiduti and Alan Moon, classic, push your luck. You are entering a, dun- uh, a temple to try and steal treasures. Each turn you flip a card, you divide whatever treasure is there, you left the remainder on the card, but this treasure that you got is not safe unless you decide to exit the dungeon. If you uh, and after every card is flipped, everyone who's still in gets a choice of getting out. If you get out, you secure everything you have. But now people who are in the dungeon are splitting the pot in fewer players. If you stay in, you risk losing everything if two of the same danger ever come out. So at the beginning, everyone is in, is everyone is in. And then the dungeon, the temple becomes more and more dangerous until either it kills everyone who's still in or everyone is out. 
and then you do it again, you do it five times. There are a couple of modifications, like since treasure stays there, sometimes even if you are not scared about losing everything, you might want to get out to collect all the remainders. There is also an incentive of every time you get out alone, you it's better. So sometimes is I really want to get out now, but if someone else does it, I don't want to. And so if you don't, and then no one else does it, I should have gone out and things like that. We have played it a lot. And it's also one that is vulnerable to more than others. It, that's always a problem in push your luck games, but it's more vulnerable than others to players who simply play it always the same, always in to the end. But it's very accessible. The theme is an Indiana Jones straight up thing, and it's very nice. It's very easy to explain, takes little to play. It spawned Android infiltration, which is basically the income gold structure, but every card is, is a room, so it's more complex. It does other things. I have never played it. It was poorly received, and now it's like a rare item because there were a few copies, and I'm not going to spend $90 on a game that is not probably that great, but I would like to try and see what they did with this idea is still you flip a card each round, but these are now rooms that you are trying to sneak in and it would be interesting to see. Yeah. I've brought Ink and Gold to like different like family things or um, friend things and it's really easy to get to the table because lots of people like push your luck, even if they're not gamers per se, people like the push your luck element because it's kind of like gambling. So people like that and they feel engaged in things. I feel like is more catered to non-gamers than it is to real gamers. It can, it can get predictable, like you said. It can get where it's just not really no one's doing a thing that surprises you so it's like you're like well of course you laughed or whatever you know if you play it with a group of like gamer gamers it's less fun than if you play it with a group of people who are just there for the experience there to have fun with it they're like i'm gonna keep going even though i know that i absolutely shouldn't like then then you know it brings that excitement level to it but if everybody's a gamer they're like, okay, well, if I leave, then I need to get this. And I and, and it can become mathy. Like people go, oh, well, I have this and that would be split. And then, so I I think that it, with the right audience, it's a good game. Yeah, it's a game, not surprising given the, the type that tries to be just fun, right? So what's your number two? Uh, my number two, which we've already talked about, is Abyss. Mm-hmm. We have switched because i think in the original episode recording of this i focused more on strict push your luck games and you had a list of games that had more elements of push your luck in them but weren't strictly push your luck and now this time i have the games (laughs) on my list that are if there's an element of it but not exactly push your luck whereas yours are more classical push your luck and i think that costs that man draw a space on your list. Oh, yeah. 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 Also because Scott hates it. 
Well, yeah, that, that's fine. <laughs> I, I, although I must say that the new the, the edition in a thing that you have yeah. with a different title, Cap- Captain Carcass or something, Captain's it, Carcass. So the captain is the, the title is terrible, but it looks very cute. And my number one, I suspect, is still also your number one, uh, is Celestia. Is it the same for you? No. No. So that's a change as well. Okay. So Celestia, it's a game about sky captains exploring sky islands, I guess. It's a push your luck game with a little more decisions than others of the ones I've mentioned because there is a rotating captain. Um, the, the game is by Aaron Weisblum for Blam, and it's from 2015. And first, it's super charming. It has the cardboard 3D flying ship. It has meeples in the expansions that you own and I don't. As also a little barrel, which you can jump in. But in general, you are rolling dice that creates a set of difficulty. And then the current captain, which is a rotating roll, has to match those with cards from their hand. And between when the dice are rolled and when they reveal cards from your end, you have basically to decide whether to trust them and stay with them or get out and get the treasure. And you're trying to get to 50 points. And there is this excitement of straight up increasing rewards. So in Ink and Gold is every card, uh, can anything can happen. Celestia makes it a little more structured and also a little less accessible. Explaining Celestia takes a little longer. Yeah. Celestia is more susceptible to playing it well. You can play Celestia well in a way that it maybe cannot in Inca Gold. And that means that, again, there are two different styles of playing it, more casual or more gamer-oriented, but it works well for both. And I really, really like it. It's charming. Everyone likes it. See it. It doesn't overstay its welcome, because despite being more involved, it's still over in half an hour. The dice are common, so you are not particularly unlucky. It's just that you can risk it, and it has this rewarding sense of achievement when you can do something. I really like it. My favorite is is when you succeed in a mission, and then you're like, all right, okay, we're, we're good. We did it. I'm going to leave now. Oh, wait. I'm the captain. I cannot leave. So it it has a lot of... of fun and talking about it made me feel like it's my number one also (laughs) because it I do I do like it it's so good and so cute like it has just the right amount of production in it I would have also taken a miniature for the flying no I like solid cardboard it's it's cute it's charming it's it's you know I I like it but I'm never one to steer away from deluxified components. So Correct. if they come out with a ri- real flying ship, you you will yeah a mini that. ship that hovers yeah. over like those magnets. Yes, that, yes, where you have things that float. Yeah, I would totally get it. Again, I said before the underwater cities deluxe. Uh, Iron Westblum, if you're listening. Do not do that. It would be like a game for Nathan only. So uh, don't. So what was your year number one before this last minute? So it was um, Quacks of Quedlingburg. And I think the reason why is because it's Scott's favorite game. So it is one that I can get to the table a ton. 
because he if even if he's not really in the mood to play a game, if I say Quacks of Quedlingburg, he's in. And also, Quacks of Quedlingburg is fun to say. Yeah, and I think it's an incredibly <laughs> successful game. And again, you are oh, yeah. you are pulling shits from a bag. It's a little more involved because you're pulling shits from the, so the, the the push your luck element is very simple, but then you are activating abilities and all of that, and it's really interesting. It it has one maybe two expansions now. One one the the herb witches, which I haven't played with yet, but I do have the. Uh, Fancy bits. I wonder if in German it herb witches also sounds something like uh, quirky. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, in pushing our luck, we also push the limits of our episode. But we were, I guess, eager to get back to talking about games that we had just played. Thank you for listening and consider subscribing, giving us a review possibly positive, but whatever, on uh, wherever you listen to this. Thank you for all of you who comment and like us and listen to us. We, we wouldn't be here if no one was listening. And you can find us on different places of the internet. We are on Instagram and Facebook at Gambit on both. Uh, you can reach us at BorgenGambit at gmail.com. You can find us on BorgenGeek. And as you probably know, on wherever you're listening to this. Thank you for listening. I've been Jackie. And I'm Nathan. Bye-bye.